0: Why won't your organization engage in peace talks with the Israelis? You don't mean exactly peace talks, you mean capitulation, surrendering. Why not just talk? I haven't seen any talk between a colonialist case and a national liberation movement. But despite this, why not talk? About what? Talk about the possibility of not fighting. Not fighting for what? Not fighting at all, no matter what for. People usually fight for something and they stop fighting for something. So you can't tell me even why should we speak about what? About stop fighting. Fighting why or to stop fighting to stop the death and the misery, the destruction, the pain. The misery and the destruction and the pain and the death of whom? Of Palestinians, of Israelis, of Arabs, of the Palestinian people who are uprooted, thrown in the camps, living in starvation, killed for twenty years. They're better that way than dead though. Maybe to you, but to us, it's not to us to liberate our country, to have dignity, to have respect, to have our mere human rights is something as essential as life itself. Welcome back to the Middle Ground Podcast. Your host, Imam Mark Manley here from the Middle Ground Muslim Center. In this episode, I'm actually going to be running solo here for a minute, reflecting on the onslaught and the butchering of the Palestinian people by the Israeli government and the erasure of them. And I wanted to articulate some thoughts and feelings that I had that I didn't get a chance to put in my khutbah or my sermon from last week it was also, uh, we had a technical difficulty and so it kind of got cut off. So this is going to be a little bit stream of thought, but I hope you will uh, find it inshallah of some benefit. And of course, leave me some feedback. Like a lot of you, the events of the past several weeks have had a profound impact upon myself. And they have left me more times than I can count with a sinking feeling in my stomach. A feeling that's a mix of rage, bewilderment, and to be quite honest, a sense of betrayal. And when I say a sense of betrayal, for those of you that know me and perhaps for some that don't, I'm not somebody that had any romantic notions about America, life in America, the history of America, uh, the tendency of America, but nonetheless, it, really, um, it has really bothered me Angered me. And to be quite honest, it has given me pause for me to reconsider my commitment to living in America. And I don't say this lightly. And I know that you may have, and I'm sure I have heard many other people express their disgust with America in the way that it has reacted to you know, this calamity, uh, this act of utter barbarism. But it has really made me, so, so as, as I wrote, you know, and I think I wrote on Twitter not that long ago, this time is different and i think many of us feel that way that this time is different and even though i you know my daughter lives here and my parents live here <clears throat> my job is here without any of those externalities or other considerations i can say without a doubt I am very open to the idea of leaving America. And I don't say that with any foolhardy sense or any romantic or nostalgic notion of what would be waiting for me wherever else I might go, but I am deeply off put. at the reality of continuing to live and therefore support a nation and a culture and a civilization from the position of ground zero. And again, I'm under absolutely no delusion that there is some fantastical magical place to run to there's no fantastical Islamistan anywhere to go to but I know now that my conscience is deeply disturbed by continuing to live here and therefore support this country this economy particularly in a system that loves to moralize its system of government and loves to go abroad and to bring freedom and its system of governance to others. But it has become clear that not only is democracy in general as a style of government a deeply flawed one, And a extremely porous form of government that is always susceptible to corruption, perhaps in ways that uh, perhaps even more so than some other forms of governance. And I know people will react and will say, well, you don't know any better And all I can say to that is, well, I do know what this is, and it's not good. And another part I want to address is, and I'm trying to really figure out the ways to frame and articulate this, but I have found that Muslims in general, as it relates to their life in America— are willing to go to almost absurd ends to do a kind of cost-benefit analysis to justify their continued existence in this country. And don't make any mistake. I'm not saying that you have to leave or you're a horrible Muslim if you don't. I'm just speaking now personally for myself. But one thing that I find very curious is that when it comes to the sins and the faults of America, many Muslims will excuse this under a rubric that has many different uh, sides to it. One will be, well, it's not a Muslim country. So we can't judge America by Islam. We can only judge Muslims by Islam, we cannot judge America by Islam because they're not Muslim and therefore they're just doing what non-Muslims do what kuffar do and so they will turn a blind eye or they will reserve judgment of course my response to that is where are we told to only cast our islamic judgment so to speak or our islamic morality where does the quran or the prophet may allah bless him where are we commanded to only uh, foist our gaze and our judgment upon fellow muslims and to reserve it from non-muslims Uh, Obviously, if you can't tell, that's a rhetorical question. (laughs) I don't think that there's any legitimate excuse or reason to do so. And so, as I said, on one hand, Muslims will find a way to excuse the malfeasance of America. However, on the converse side, Muslims are intolerant of Muslim societies that are not a living embodiment of Islam in all of its perfection. And so there's a a zero tolerance policy that I find that exists amongst many Muslims when it comes to Muslim lands or Muslim nations. And by this, I just mean places where the population has either a significant minority or even uh, a majority population, because very, very few places, if any, really qualify as truly uh, 100% Sharia uh, 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 compliant, so to speak. And so, whether that you know they'll they'll, they'll hurl all kinds of accusations against uh, Muslim polities to such an extent that it's beyond the pale of consideration of moving to a Muslim society, though it may have some faults, may have some corruption, it may do some things that are wrong, but because it is, in their perception, some kind of Muslim polity or nation or society, the fact that it is uh, they have a zero-tolerance policy towards it, it's completely beyond the pale of conversation or consideration to move there. And so, that's one thing. But I think the time is coming where Muslims are going to have to ask to what lengths are they willing to go to the performance of this cost-benefit analysis? Two, beyond only the situation in Palestine, is is America fertile ground for the development of a religious sensibility in general, and specifically a Muslim sensibility? We've all seen the change that this country and this civilization is going through, and most of us do not feel good or confident about it. Many of us are struggling with our children to uh, successfully actualize another generation of Muslims that will not be completely compromised by this society that they live in. And I'm well aware that not everybody can even entertain a possibility of moving. Fine. But where does something have to be an all or nothing or all gambit? And I mentioned to my wife that the outrage that many Muslims are feeling over what's happening and how we've been hearing and reverberating from other muslims who are seriously looking at potentials to move out of this country i for one am actually i think this is good i think uh again not to do something not to do something rash but i like the fact that this could potentially be a catalyst for Muslims to return back to seeing themselves as an ummah. For those unfamiliar with the term ummah, it is a term, it is a term that the Quran uses to describe uh, a nation, where Allah says Kuntum Ummatin Linnas uh, Umma uh, Which translate as you are the best Um, the best nation or the best community, uh, brought out for the sake of all of humanity. Now what can be sometimes a little bit misleading or difficult for some people today, is for them to understand that a nation is not the same as, you know, a a, a specific polity. That The Muslims, whether they are, you know, whether they're in Pakistan or Poland, they're all part of the same ummah. They're all part of the same nation, even if they have different nationalities or they're passports or from this or that country, we're all one ummah. And this situation is teaching Muslims to look at their circumstances and to reconsider those circumstances and to maybe think, is this the only game in town? Perhaps the reason why we're not getting the kind of response or traction that we would want to. We're not getting the response from those that we share a nationality with. I'm from America, so fellow Americans. Or if you're in Canada, with fellow Canadians. Or if you're in somewhere in Europe, you know, French or British. And without a doubt, There are definitely those that are sympathetic and see the truth of the matter. But uncontestably, there are a great many who don't. Uh, And then when you combine that with the fact that all media is controlled uh, and is subservient to one particular narrative, uh, that... A significant chunk of the population is still, um, you know, they, 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 they see it only from this one side. And so we don't feel the sympathy. The sympathy that we might be getting from some non-Muslims is definitely in the minority. Inshallah, it's growing. But as I said, it's a multifactorial thing. The moral degradation of America. The financial Degradation of America. Uh, The fact that this country seems to have an unlimited willingness to fund war and destruction, you know, whether sending money to Ukraine. Now we're going to send over a billion dollars to Israel And yet, any talk of addressing social issues here, there seems to be a lack of funding. And so, yeah, it it becomes to a point where I'm tired of this and I no longer wish to participate in it quite so directly. I'm under no illusion that anywhere I might go, uh, the reach of America is quite long But there's a difference between dealing with that reality from the periphery and dealing with it from ground zero. But I want to turn now and address specifically, right, this... What's the word? I mean, (laughs) we have a word in Arabic, dhulam, from the Quran, dhulam, that is translated as oppression. And of course... Zulumat is the word for darkness. That God is Waliyul Ladina Amanu. God is the guardian of the people of faith. Yukhrijohum mina dhulumati ila nur. That God is the guardian of the faithful and He brings them out of darkness into light. So dhulum and dhulumat. You know, oppression, darkness, I don't know. You know, honestly, um, the images that we have all been bombarded with, pun intended, uh, it leaves one sometimes at a loss for words. But when you look at the narrative and you look at how it's discussed, and that's why I put that little piece at the very beginning. I opened up with that piece at the very beginning of this episode. Because when people discuss this issue, they will often talk about it. Well, it's complicated. There is nothing complicated about this whatsoever. The Zionists, and, I, and, I, and really, it's not about the Jews, because what we have before us, is zionism pure in its pure unadulterated form and zionism is not the same as judaism and just to be clear it's not that i don't want to make a critique of judaism the quran critiques judaism it critiques it critiques the jews it critiques their creed and it critiques their attitude and it critiques their deeds and their beliefs, no doubt. But what we are dealing with here today is Zionism. And therefore, what we are dealing with is the repercussions of the manifestation of a Zionist state. And so, you will hear people say, well, if the, Pal- if the Palestinians are interested in peace, why don't they just stop fighting? There are so many of these kinds of comments in which there is an unspoken assumption is that the Palestinians have no right to self-determination. That at no point did they ever have any agency, any autonomy, And that it was just merely a matter of time. And when the time was right, somebody could come along and could dispossess them of their lands and even of their lives. And that was the right for whomever that was to do so. In this case, the Zionists. And if they were to put up any form of resistance it would either at best have to be with both hands tied behind their back or, more commonly, they should put up no fight whatsoever. They should just simply accept this uh, somehow uh, uncontestable truth that Zionists and those of a Jewish Jewish lineage— have the uncontested right to come back and take everything for themselves. And anybody that gets in the way of that is not only a terrorist, but is so blind to the truth that they have a right to this land that only the barbaric and the insane would see it that way. And so... Part of the outrage that we are seeing from the Zionists and their supporters is how dare these Palestinians stand up to us and fight us and refute us coming and taking that which we had no right to take, namely their lives and their land. And I think what they were really hoping for is that the Palestinians— Because there's been so much, and this is something that cannot be laid entirely at the feet of the Zionists. This is something that also goes back to the problem of Eurocentrism. And in fact, any genealogy of Zionism will ultimately lead back to Eurocentrism. Because the problem of the Jewish question that we are supposed to you know, be resolving today with the formation of a Zionist state, goes back to Europe. Those of Jewish lineage that were living in Europe had a particular experience. <clears throat> and I don't think many people can argue that it was not a pleasant one but why should the Palestinian people pay for the crimes ultimately of the Europeans? It is, you know, there's this adage of the Arabs want to drive the Jews into the sea. No, what happened is that the, the Europeans were unable to find a way to cohabitate with the Jews of Europe. And out of that, they came up with this idea of, well, we should find them a homeland. And of course, people like Theodore Herzl, who are not practicing Jews. This is why, again, this is not Judaism, this is Zionism. In fact, Herzl flirted with uh, different forms of Christianity, his son also uh, flirted with Christianity and from all accounts seems to have become a kind of agnostic or atheist by the end of his life. And because of their inability to cohabitate with them, first they entertain, well, maybe we'll find you somewhere in Africa. Well, the question still remains, why should Africans— Not to say that there aren't Africans that aren't Jews. I mean, you have Ethiopian Jews. But why should some place in Africa that is not Jewish, why should they be forced to have part of their land annexed to make it an only Zionist Jewish state? Why should one group of people pay for the crimes of another? And so what I was thinking is that they were hoping that these people would just roll over. And that seems to be what infuriates them the most is that these kuffar, these staunch enemies of God, cannot understand why a group of people would prefer to die standing on their feet trying to achieve freedom and self-determination, and dignity, than to gain, or just simply rather to go on living, but on their knees. And there's a beautiful passage in the Quran, where God says, where Allah says, وَالْفِتْنَةُ أَشَدُّ مِنَ القتل. The trials and tribulations are worse than even dying. And this is something that some people, why don't they just give up? Why don't they just lay down their weapons? Why don't, why don't, why don't? Because to accept such a level of dehumanization and to accept such a level of indignity is actually worse than dying itself. And of course... The ahbab of dunya, the lovers of this life, because they are cowards through and through, cannot understand when they are slapped in the face with that kind of raw, visceral courage, that they would rather die trying for self-determination because at the end of the day, whether they succeed or not, and people say, well, what's the point? All they've got is, you know, rocks or maybe a few rockets. And Israel has, you know, not only a nuclear arsenal, but of course, by extension, all of the military technological sorcery of the United States at their disposal. So why, why don't they just give up? Because they know nothing of cowardice. This country loves to moralize about it. It has the greatest military in the world even though somehow it was magically defeated by 19 Arabs that went on a shopping spree at Home Depot or, or Office Max and bought some box cutters and somehow defeated the greatest military in the world. Which ironically seems to have happened again, that somehow the October surprise by Hamas defeated while, as we say, in an open-air prison, while under constant surveillance, and again the surveillance of Israel is state of the art cutting edge they are on they are the leaders of facial recognition software and all these other things so how did they manage to pull this quarterback sneak all the while under observation it definitely invites so-called conspiratorial thinking that how could they possibly do this if they are human animals and they are savages man that's some really really sophisticated savages it begs a lot of unanswered questions but it seems more than anything to really really uh anger and incite and confound people that don't that truly have no comprehension of what real courage is this country will talk about the greatest military and how they're an army of one and You know, you look at them, they go to war, and they've got all this great, sophisticated technology. And yet, one seven-foot-tall, you know, quasi-paraplegic diabetic in a cave somewhere supposedly thwarted the greatest military masterminds of America, and they had to go hunt him down. And the way that—it just—it really— it requires a stupidity of self participation at least for my part i'm not willing to indulge in but yes the palestinians are extraordinarily brave because they realize that one tawfiq lillah victory is by allah's decree and so they're not they're fighting a course for their self dignity and determination because they would like to live <clears throat> a life that is free from oppression but they also understand that it is purely Allah's decision of whether he will give them a victory or not whether doing it for his pleasure in the hopes that they will win but not purely for that that is a raw kind of courage and determination because number one, it's not axiomatic on earthly gains. So it's 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 quite admirable and may Allah Ta'ala indeed grant them a المبينن, a clear victory over their oppressors. But now also I wanna turn because I you know what is the lesson for those of us here on the sideline? How can we look at this? And so in my khutbah, in my sermon last week, <coughs> I had mentioned a couple of verses of the Qur'an and a couple of statements of the Prophet wasallam. And I'll just put those here again because actually... <laughs> The the recording of the khutbah somehow had a technical error and we lost it. So I mentioned the passage in Surah Al Ma'idah in which Allah says, So this is in the 56th verse of the fifth chapter of the Quran, from the 56th verse of Surah Al Ma'idah. And Allah said, The only guardian, your only guardian, O Muslims, is Allah God his messenger Muhammad sallallahu alaihi wasallam may Allah bless him and امنوا and the other believers salata wa and then those believers of are a specific quality those that are regular in the establishment of their prayers and their giving of what is due to purify their wealth to give to the poor wa and they are humble because Allah Ta'ala mentions the ruku or the bowing even though he mentioned prayer because in Islam as Muslims when we pray we make ruku we bow but that Allah mentions this this راكعون, people who are people who are bowing doesn't mean they're walking around bowing it means that what they are devout overall. That there's no separation between being religious in the masjid and outside of the masjid, in the mosque, outside the mosque. They're, they're religiously uh, committed through and through. wa <inaudible> zakata Right? And that Allah Ta'ala, are just reminding us, so when we ask ourselves what we can do, one, we have to understand. As Muslims, we have one guardian. None can save us. Running to the United Nations cannot save us. Running to Joe Biden or to Donald Trump is not going to save us. We, are, we only have one guardian. That is Allah Ta'ala, God Almighty. Secondly, is the messenger, alayhi and what a blessing it is, to be in his ummah, in his nation. And then, third, now we need to look at ourselves. What kind of Muslims are we? Are we consistent? Because Allah says, zakata wa hum They pray and they give zakat, they pray and they, they're charitable, they're generous with their money to the poor, but they are consistently religious, not just only in the moment, but they are consistently religious. And that Allah says, and for the one. And so, whomever then takes God as their guardian, as their only guardian, as well as the Prophet Muhammad and the other believers, that they will indeed be the party of God and they will be successful. So as I said, you know, I am one of the outtakes of this is I'm glad that Muslims are angry and upset by this and that it has made us reconsider uh, our affiliation with one another and to strengthen the bonds of one another. But then as for the statement of the Prophet, I had mentioned this hadith to put some things in context. And this is a hadith that is related by uh, Thawban one of the companions of the Prophet peace sallam and he said qala qala Rasulullah sallallahu alaihi wasallam uh yushikulu ummu anta da anta da'a alaikum kama tada'a al'aklatu ila qas'atiha that the Prophet sallam was reported to have said that the nations will soon you know, come together. They will call one of the uh, meaning that they will they will summon one another and come together, right? Kama al in the way that you call somebody over for dinner. like to share the same dish, and so whether it's in India or. In Gaza, in Palestine, or in many other areas, we see Muslims being attacked from many different sides, in China, many different sides. And one man in the audience that heard the Prophet ﷺ say this said, <coughs> he said rather, قائل, so one person who heard this, he said, فَمِنْ Is it because we're going to be small in number? The Prophet responded and said بَلْ أَنْتُمْ No, actually you will be great in number. But you will be like scum or foam كَمَا Like the foam that's on top of the river, the scum that's on top of the river. <coughs> I didn't say it The Prophet said it And The reason why I mention this Is that again Our hearts ache We're angry We're outraged But there is a tremendous lesson That is being taught And a tremendous reminder Muslims we say it But sometimes we don't always imagine How the consequence Or the manifestation of how that will be And that is لَحَوْلَ وَلَا illa billah. As we say, what there's no power, there's no might, there's no agency except for by God's leave, illa billah. And so, when this man hears about this future time in which the Muslims will be preyed upon and attacked, uh, and he's he's his first thought is, "Oh, we must be very few in number." And the Prophet says, no indeed, you will be large. How many of us have heard You know, Islam is the fastest growing religion here or there in the West, in America, in the world, whatever that it is, and that there are two billion Muslims, two billion Muslims on the face of the planet or somewhere thereabouts. And not a single one of us can lift a finger at the moment to do anything for Palestine, can do nothing for the Muslims being attacked in India, can do nothing for the situation in Kashmir, or for the other Muslims in Africa, for instance, that are fighting uh, to to break the yoke and the grip of still the uh, of of, the, of of the French and the other European colonizers, you know, wanting to break free from that. <clears throat> so we live in a moment where we are indeed great in number, but our efficacy and our agency is very small. <clears throat> no, this might sound, on one hand, to be oh my god, this is kind of depressing, and certainly it should give one uh, pause. But it's also, it is a comfort in that the the words of the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam are true. They are very very true, and so he continued by saying and that he said that the the you will be numerous but what will what will happen though even though you are great in number that Allah will take away the fear for of you from the hearts of your enemies and think about it if you attack somebody today whether that's a physical attack, or you cast certain words. If you say something against a Jewish person today, immediately you will be censured with anti-Semitism, and you will face all kinds of backlash. And you could perhaps even go to jail. And indeed, if somebody were to attack Israel, they would jump in and they would defend them. And people are fearful. This is no. This is not a conspiracy theory. Many, many people today are fearful to be be critical of Zionism and the Zionist state of Israel because they fear the reprisal. But there's no fear of any criticism against Islam as a religion. You can burn the Quran. You can commit hate crimes against Muslims. Uh... You can say whatever you want to. You can draw cartoons about the Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. You can do anything you want to Muslims, and nobody fears any reprisal for doing so. Again, the words of the Prophet are true. It is reassuring that his words are true, but it is also obviously quite troubling that we are now living in this exact time that he spoke of so wa la yanzu wa la yanzu anallahu min sudurikum min suduri 'udwikum almahaba minkum and then what wa wa yaf wa la yaqdhifallahu fi qulubihim alwahan and that in addition to simply take you know of taking away the fear and the respect that uh, uh and here the word is not khawf Allah doesn't say that, uh, the Prophet ﷺ doesn't say that, suduri adubi kum al khauf. He doesn't say fear. He uses the word mahab, Right? Mahab uh, from Haib uh, This actually also is a word to use respect. And that's one of the things I had mentioned in my khutbah unfortunately got cut off and so I wasn't able to share is that on a smaller scale, I've seen this come true in my own lifetime, <clears throat> where you take in the American context, Islam, as it was perceived in the 60s and indeed even into the 70s, particularly in the African-American community, in the black community, Islam, even in its heretical expressions like Nation of Islam or More Science Temple, uh, movements that were heretical, meaning that they were not Muslim. They their, their 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 creed was was the complete opposite of Islam, believing that you know God was a black man and you know, you know or that a man period and that a black man they're completely out there. Or that somebody else was a was a was a was a prophet or a messenger after the Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. Right? So from a doctrinal point of view, they were completely gone. Putting that aside. Islam was viewed, and therefore the Muslim in particular, because people really know what Islam was, but the Muslim was viewed with great respect and great reverence, even if they didn't know exactly what it was a Muslim was. And so we look at examples like Malik Shabazz, Rahimullah, better known as Malcolm X. Malcolm was greatly revered, and the Muslims were greatly revered in black America, even for people that were diehard Christians that would have been opposed to Islam, whether it was, you know, whether we're talking about the, the heretical forms of Islam or not. That being said, they knew that being a Muslim was a good thing, that it was about, you know, the embitterment of black people, and it was about living a certain kind of upright life. And so Islam existed in the imagination of black people. As something to be esteemed and to be respected, and so by the time the '80s came along and the advent of you know hip hop music, of course, many of uh, the progenitors of that genre of music drew a lot of their inspiration from Islam, and so you find their lyrics were talking about Martin, and they were talking about Islam, and they were talking, I mean Malcolm, and talking about Islam, and you know all these other things. It's, it, and, and many of them themselves were not Muslim. A great many of them were not Muslim. And yet in the, in the, in the collective imagination and psyche of many African Americans, Islam was a great thing to be esteemed. In other words, they had Mahaba. But now we find that going away where Islam, even in the black community, its reputation and the ideal of it is greatly tarnished. And so it's true. And then what will be as a consequence of that, of the respect having gone away? <coughs> that Allah would put and replace in your hearts, he would throw into it. Or, you know, it's interesting, Qadhafa, like if you know Qadhafi, right? The reason why they called him uh, Qadhafi or Qadhafi <clears throat> is because apparently his time in his, in, in his military service, he was a bomber. So qadava means to throw or to cast, but also it's the same It's the same verb that's used to describe like dropping a bomb. So وَلَا يَقْذِي فَنَّ اللَّهُ فِي قُلُوبِكُمْ الْوَهَنِ And the Prophet said, and then Allah will cast into your hearts الْوَهَنِ And again, فَقَالَ ya Rasulullah اللَّهُ مَا الْوَهَنِ And so again, a person in the audience says, Oh Messenger of Allah, what is al-wahin, what is this thing that Allah will then throw into our hearts that will displace? Because, you know, this is the thing, when, you, when, you, when, you, when, when a bomb goes off, it displaces whatever it's in its location. You know, it, the air pressure, it's a sudden massive change in air pressure, and that's what basically an explosion is, and it displaces things out of their location. So the, the, the fear of God that we used to have in our heart— and the reference, reverence of Allah that we used to have in our heart, and the the the, the not being afraid of anybody else, uh, uh, that that will be, Allah will cast this thing called al-wahan into our heart that will displace that that will remove it from our heart. And when he, when he said, Ya Rasulullah, O Messenger of Allah, what is al-wahan?" He's called hubba dunya. It is nothing other than the the love of this worldly life and a detesting of death in the hereafter. Many of us, are, we, we, are, we are upset at our predicament, and we run to the very people, where We run the people that we run to to aid us and assist us and help us are the very same people that make a mockery of who we are as Muslims, a mockery of our religion, and they have absolutely no respect for us, and yet we run to them and run to them and run to them, hoping and hoping for their approval and their support, and they will not give it. And so, in that same passage that I mentioned of the fifth chapter, Allah says, "Ya ayyuhanadina aminu, O you who believe, O Muslims, la ta ladina dinakum huzu'an wa la'iban." All you who believe, do not take those who would take you and your religion as a joke and make a mockery of it. First and foremost, from those that recite the book, from Christians and Jews. And this is where I said, the main problem is definitely Zionism. But there can't be no conversation about Zionism unless we're dealing with a particular group of people of Jewish lineage, not all Jews, but a particular group, and their ideology, and their Christian supporters. And those two together, they think Islam is a joke, and they make a mockery of it. And Allah says what? utul Like those that were given Scripture before you. والكفر, as well as those that are just ardently kafir, ardently enemies of God, taking them as guardians and protectors, the same people we were running to to help us, the UN, the this or that, all of the interfaith that we've been doing. And I'm not trying to, I'm sure somebody's going to hear this, yeah, but I did interfaith. By and large, Muslims need to ask themselves, what did all of this interfaith? I mean, just recently here in SoCal, uh, there was an initiative of Muslims to meet with evangelical Christians. For what? I'm sorry, but for what? Those are the people most ardently will make a mockery of Islam and have absolutely no respect for Muslims. What are we getting out of these things? And more importantly, instead of looking to them, what have we done to cultivate our own, you know, juice? As a friend of mine, we're talking the other day. I said, "You know, I guess you know." As as a black person, <clears throat> I look at this like all of the all of the problems that face black people in America. And of course, now this is I, I'm going to be like, you know, well, he's some kind of like you know Thomas Soul, Uncle Tom, you know Red Pill. I am definitely not Red Pilled. I have absolutely no infatuation with. Uh, so-called conservative thinkers i sure as don't with liberal thinkers as well that being said if you look at the plight and the predicament of black folk when we came together in solidarity in the 40s and 50s into the 60s and fought for you know our rights in this country sure there were without a doubt none of it it wouldn't have happened without There also being a groundswell of support from the white community. But that wouldn't have come about without us banding together first. And so that's a very different process. But then, if you look at the plight of our people, of black, so called black people in America post civil rights, is that we largely then disbanded from coming together as a people and hope to acquire our rights or whatever else you want to call it from now constantly going to politics and what has politics done for black people I know this is going to be an unpopular sentiment but I'm just going to it's, you know, this is my podcast so you know you don't like it get your own my personally I don't see that and I and, and again people can get upset when I look to the Asian American community This is a community that has, from my purview, the least amount of political representation, particularly on the national scale, and to some degree on maybe the state and then the local and participation in chambers of commerce and whatnot. But generally, overall, they have not relied or put all their ducks and eggs in one basket so to speak, of we got to have political power in order to have a dignified life or to get out of America what we need to get out of it. It's also in part due to uh, a set of cultural norms. And so relying upon one another and having a functional culture, in my opinion, will produce more results than purely playing this... This this game of politics. And so with all of the Muslim politicians that we have, what have we gained from it? What have we gotten from Rashida Tulaib, for instance, other than saying, well, in my view, Allah is a she. And that's not made up. You can go look at that. Perhaps she has, you know, recanted or retracted that statement. I'm not aware of it, which is, of course, is, this is a statement that would make a person not a Muslim. If you think that God, that Allah is a she, this is, if you think Allah really is a he, though, yes, Allah has chosen in his own uh, in his own divine wisdom and knowledge only to refer to himself with male pronouns. <laughs> in no way does that make God a man or even masculine. But Allah has either, refer, either referred to himself as anna, right, or as hua, which is you know, third person masculine, uh, or nahnu right? But Allah has never referred to himself as Hiya. Now you go to such an extent, now you say, well, in, for me, you know, uh, uh, Allah is a she. And this person is still invited to speak on behalf of Muslims, Even though, I mean, her job is not representing Muslims. Her job is to represent her district or whatever she was voted from. But in the Muslim context, we invite her to keep talking. And then likewise with Ilhan Omar. What has she gotten us? She can get on stage and she can rant and rave about our brothers and sisters in Palestine. But then look at her voting record. She votes to approve money for Israel. Because you're not going to make it as a politician if you don't. And then on top of that, she's dancing in a gay pride parade and only is in this like hijab in front of the Muslims, but in the gay pride parade, she's got on a short sleeve t-shirt and some kind of Erica Badu, you know, head wrap. This is what I mean. Do not become distracted by the love of this life. Don't become distracted by the illusion of the gains of politics. But instead, work together to build a healthy, functional, and supportive Muslim community. One of which we we band together. Financially, economically, collectively, all those other things. So that's just kind of what's been on my mind. Like I said, I know that we've all been... <clears throat> We've all been upset, but you know, it's okay to be upset, and I'll leave this as my last little thing here because this is already going on for <laughs> quite a quite a while now. But I'll leave this last statement of the Prophet as something to consider. Or actually, these last two things. One last statement of the Prophet and one last verse from the Quran. As for the statement from the Prophet, alayhi sala salam. It's okay to be upset and angry and to call people out because there will come a day that we might not do so and that will definitely be our demise. And this is related in the Musnad of Imam Ahmed. Rahimullah. And he said, qala sallallahu alaihi wasallam that the Prophet said, Idha ummati ta'hab He said, when you see my Ummah that they fear the oppressor, or they venerate. Because again, Mahaba and Tahaba these words, they share the same root, and it, it can mean to fear, but it can also mean to respect and to venerate. So he said, alayhi said sallam, when you see my ummah, the Muslims giving excessive veneration or, 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 or fear or lapdogging, the oppressor. أن تقول له إنك أنت that they don't want to say to him you are an oppressor فقد منهم فقد منهم then it's over he said they're done for so be upset and voice your concern and voice your objection. Don't be browbeaten and uh, fearful to to speak your mind on this. Because it is actually it will be kind of a barometer. When that disappears, then we're we're very, very sick. And lastly, another verse from Sut al Ma'ida, the hundredth verse, where Allah says, Qul, la al wa tayyib. Say, Muhammad, tell the people that evil and good are not the same. لا يستوي أعجبك كثرة الخبيث. Even though you will be blown away by all of the the, the, the those things that are khabaith you'll be blown away by evil. Evil is something you know sometimes something horrible will happen and you'll be like oh my god it's ajib. So amazing. We only use the word amazing in English, oh that's amazing. Mainly in a positive way. But a'jaba which is the the verb to for a thing to be ajib, it's the verb for a thing to be wow, you know, like a wow, amazing, but not in a positive way, right? So you know, don't know that, that that the evil and good, they're not the same. Even though you will be amazed or blown away, you'll be disturbed by the multiplicity and the amount of evil that there is. And what we're seeing now is evil, the, the sheer carnage and the volume of imagery and the, the, the numbers of dead children and on and on and on. It will undoubtedly. And what is the response to this that he tells the Prophet to tell the Muslims? Have fear and reverence of Allah. Meaning that check yourself. Don't allow yourself to be put off by this. Affected, yes, so that you speak truth. And you call it out and you fight against it and on and on. But be mindful of how you will affect your heart. Fatuq ya Ya'ulil Albab, O people of intellect, so that you will become successful. So, as I told my wife the other day, you know, take a break from the doom scrolling from the social media, you know, I'm not saying go away from it entirely because that's where a lot of this conversation is happening. Especially for those of us, this is our battlefield is there, but be mindful and don't push yourself to a point that, uh, it it causes you some type of harm. Step away that don't feel any shame. Uh, or guilt in needing to, you know, I got to turn my phone off for a minute. I got to step away. I need to take a little hiatus. You can still make du'a for the people of Gaza or the people of Hind or anybody else, you know, that, that are dealing with these these issues. You can continue to make du'a, but maybe give yourself a pause with some of that, uh, the, the, the onslaught of the imagery because it, you know, it may, may indeed overwhelm you. As always, leave some comments, welcome comments in the, in, in the, in the comment section. And uh, we have a, another, uh, inshallah, I hope you'll find it beneficial, conversation between myself and brother Daud al on health coming up. That'll be out uh, next, inshallah. As-salamu alaykum.